You all know how much I love a strong female main character, and that's what we've got in Karana from Island of the Blue Dolphins. This book was written by Scott O'Dell and published in 1960, and it won the Newbery Medal in 1961. In the decades since then, it's become a well-known fixture of the kid-lit world, though it's encountered some critics, particularly in the last few years. The major issue? Well, it's the story of a young girl born and raised within an island tribe, but it's told by a white man. And no matter how much you love Island of the Blue Dolphins, that just doesn't fly so much anymore. Don't worry, we'll talk about it more in the episode. Problematic stuff aside, this is a fascinating story, and one based on real life. In the 19th century, a woman known as Juana Maria was rescued from the Channel Islands off the coast of California. She'd been living there alone for 18 years, ever since her people were decimated by a war with a boat of white colonizers. Scott O'Dell was inspired by Juana Maria's story when he wrote Island of the Blue Dolphins, though he made some changes. Karana is younger, just 12 when we meet her, and she's initially left on the island she calls home because of her efforts to save her little brother, Ramo. When, spoiler alert, Ramo was killed shortly after, Karana is left to survive all on her own. Her journey to build a life in such a dangerous environment is empowering and inspiring, and, as always, it opens the door for us to have some bigger conversations, this time around things like gender roles, colonization, and our connection with animals. This week's guest is Perrin Brown, a Venture for America fellow currently living in Philadelphia. In her spare time, she enjoys revisiting throwbacks while cuddling with her bearded dragon. Follow her on Instagram at Feminist Script for refreshing intersectional feminist content or at Celiac Queen for her favorite gluten-free restaurants and recipes. Thanks so much to Perrin for joining me on this episode. Thanks also to our awesome SSR Patreon sponsors. These superfans contribute a few dollars, as little as just one, to the show on a monthly basis, and they receive some great exclusive perks in return. If you want to get in on newsletters, bonus episodes, merch, and more, visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast, or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support. I'm an independent podcaster, so these Patreon sponsorships are hugely important and appreciated. I also appreciate the growing community we have on social media. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SSRPod and find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. You can also help grow the show by telling your friends about it, either in person or by tagging that you're listening in your Instagram stories and by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. I read every last one of those reviews and they make me so happy. This listener community means a lot to me and I want to say thank you for all that you do to spread the SSR love. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to The SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Perrin. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. That makes me so happy. <laughs> I love I love all the episodes. I'm actually still reading like some of the Little House of the Prairie books, so I really liked the episode you did on that one. <laughs> I was listening to a podcast recently called Bad on Paper, which I would very much recommend to listeners. I'll link it in the show notes. They were talking to Alyssa Mastromonaco about Little House on the Prairie, 
that I guess she's binging the series because like she used to work in the White House and now she just wrote a book and she's like not doing anything right now. So she's decided that she's going to binge watch the whole series. And I used to love the show when I was little. So I'm like, I don't know where I can find it to binge, but like maybe I'll binge watch the whole series, go back to the books. I feel like it's probably very relaxing at nighttime. I found that with the book at least. That's exactly what I do. It's my, definitely my pre-bedtime uh, uh, routine is just like lighting a candle and reading that because it's just so um, wholesome. It's so wholesome besides like some of the like problematic terminology, obviously. <laughs> yeah, which is like a whole other subject. But check that episode <laughs> out, listeners, if you haven't. I will also link that in the show notes. In addition to being so happy that you're a fan of the show, I'm so happy because, listeners, I'm looking outside my window right now and it's officially spring. So if I sound extra happy, I am. Like I'm really happy. I think I'm going to be able to go out this afternoon without a coat on. Oh, I, feel, I, I already did and it feels amazing. I'm not going to lie. There's so many, there's so much good energy out there. A lot of cute dogs in the park. Unheard of. I also need to paint my toenails, but that's like a whole other thing. Oh, same. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really what I'm here to do, Perrin. Anyway, you chose to read Island of the Blue Dolphins. We got a lot of requests for this one, really since day one of the podcast. I feel like I say that a lot, but the truth is that as this community grows, the requests also grow. And so I feel like almost every book that we're doing has this like subset of listeners who are really excited to hear about it. So Island of the Blue Dolphins, I'm going to kick it over to you. Why did you choose to read this one for the podcast? Uh, so when I was in middle school, uh, during our homeroom, I think we had an SSR. I don't know if they called it that, but we definitely had 20 minutes each morning where we read. And my English for sixth grade was split up into reading and writing randomly. I remember this was on the shelf with all a bunch of other classic like new Newberry Award winners in um, sixth grade, and I picked it up, and I really liked it. And the thing I think that struck me was that it was one of the first books I read as a kid that showed the perspective of those being colonized as opposed to the perspective of colonizers, mm. and seeing that perspective about how awful colonialism is for the natives. Because I mean, until then, it was like, oh, Columbus sailed the ocean blue and founded America. You know, a bunch of cookie cutter, sugar coated narratives about the colonizers and how it made the world the better place where in reality it actually didn't for those who were being colonized that makes sense it ruined a lot of lies not so great so I too read this book I think in elementary school as I again I feel like I say these same things a lot what I will say that's a little bit different is that I actually remember not being a huge fan of this book Mm. and and I don't really remember why I, I think I felt like I was supposed to like it because it was a book that my mom had read. I think my stepmom gave it to me. It was published in 1960, so it's been around. I felt like my teachers liked it. I think that there were some classes in my school who were reading it together. I never read it as part of like a class assignment. I think I had friends that enjoyed it. So I think I really felt like it was something that I was supposed to like, and so I was excited to read it. And I wonder if it's kind of the equivalent of like when I get super hyped to read something that I've seen all over Bookstagram today, where I'm like, oh, this is going to be fucking amazing. And then I read it, and it's like, oh, I don't know. Like, I don't know that I love this. I remember loving the protagonist. Like, I obviously love that this is a survival story with a little girl at the heart of it. But I I also just remember kind of being underwhelmed by it as a whole. And it reminds me a little bit of Julie of the Wolves, which is another book that we covered a few months ago. And I think I felt similarly about it. I don't always do well with books that are super heavy on description. And that's how I am as an adult reader too. As a lot of listeners know already, I'm super big on like 
highly character-driven books. And the irony and also like the art of this book is that there's really only one human character for the vast majority of it. And so as a kid, I think like it's interesting that I already had my preferences toward books that were really heavy on characters. That being said, like I remember knowing it was a beautiful book. I remember knowing it was important. Um, But I don't know that I knew like why it was important. So reading it again, doing some research about it, even hearing that like kick-ass intro that you've already given us is such a reminder of how important this book is, like regardless of whether my nine-year-old self or my 28-year-old self quote unquote likes it. Like this is a, this is a big deal of a book. No, totally. And you know, honestly, I felt the same. I felt similarly. Like I remember when I was younger, it was hard to push myself through. I just like, I think either I was either between books or hadn't had something to really uh, just dive into during my SSR. So I think I kind of forced myself to get through this also, just because I, I didn't remember anyone being forced to read this in school either, but I definitely dragged for this last two thirds of the book. And I, I felt similarly just like finishing it this morning. Yeah. I finished it this morning too. Confession. <laughs> it's a Saturday. We had some time. It was fine. So I, I want to sort of piggyback on the way that you introed your like history with this book and like the progression of like sort of the colonized versus the colonizers. And I think that's like a good window into like just sort of doing a brief setup for listeners who haven't read the book or or haven't thought of the book in a long time. Basically, when we meet our main character, Karana, um, she's living among her family, among her tribe on an island off of the coast of California. And I think what's interesting to me is like as a kid, this experience felt so unlike anything that I had ever like even imagined and so removed from my life and now reading it as an adult I'm like oh this is an island off the coast of the United States totally I I've actually spent a lot of time in Santa Barbara because I used to live in LA and would drive up to visit my friends in Santa Barbara and the fact that apparently she ends up the character ends up in the in the mission is just wild to me like I did not think this was an island off California that was that went over my head definitely as a kid and now reading it as an adult I'm just like whoa yeah I don't know where this is a place this is a place off the coast of the United States yeah I don't know where I thought she was living but I was like this island has to be like in the middle of nowhere but no it's like not that far from Santa Barbara Oh, and apparently it's a naval base right now. I read that, which is so crazy. I mean, I like I, I was hoping I could go there, but I doubt it's possible. I was reading somewhere that there's like a national park not far, like on another island nearby that I guess, and they've turned it into this like amazing resource center for the story of the Island of the Blue Dolphins because listeners, this is based on a, on a true story, which we'll talk about. And I have to say like added to my reading experience. Again, this is something that I didn't know as a kid. I had no idea that this was based on a true story story I wonder if it would have affected like my appreciation of it as a kid and is maybe like maybe that's why this should be assigned reading but yeah totally miss that she's off the coast of California her dad is the chief which I think is sort of like a trope of kids lit like I think about Pocahontas you know where she's like the daughter of the chief of the tribe (laughs) or Moana I'm the daughter of the village chief oh my gosh Moana okay Matt's gonna be so embarrassed when I admit this but like no, actually, he's not. He fucking loves Moana. And I, we watched Moana, and he could not stop talking about how great it was. And I like the music, but I'm just like, I don't get the Moana thing. But you're totally right. Moana is the daughter of the chief of the tribe. Oh, my gosh. Such a funny trope, indeed. Well, it's like the princess thing. It's like a princess. Yeah. It's like an yeah. untouchable princess 
thing where like, you know, you as the, you're a young girl, but you're on the edge of something bigger and you're protected by this family that has some clout in your community. And like, I I feel like that all kind of plays into it. Oh, and I think Tiger Lily was also the daughter of the village chief chief of the tribe. Let's talk about problematic, shall we? Problematic. (laughs) I would need like another drink or not that I'm even having a drink, but I'm like, I would need another drink to get into the Tiger Lily, Peter Pan debacle. So Karana is living on this island with her father. She has a younger brother named Ramo, Ramo. So cute. Love him. Mischievous. He makes me so mad. Yeah, love him. He makes me so mad. I don't have a little brother, but if I had a little brother, like, I think I would probably have those exact same feelings. I, I feel like he was written as sort of like the typical little brother. Karana also has an older sister named Ulape, I believe is how it would be pronounced. Listeners, we're going to do our best with some of these proper nouns. They're tricky. They're not ones that I'm familiar with, but she has this little brother named Ramo, an older sister named Ulape. We get the sense that this is like a very patriarchal community. I always feel like I add an extra syllable oh to that <laughs> word, patriarchal. We This very like male-driven society, there's so many rules about what the women are and aren't allowed to do, which plays into Karana's story more going forward, but... I will lead us off with just one quote that I pulled out that says, The women who were never asked to do more than stay at home, cook food, and make clothing now must take the place of the men and face the dangers which abound beyond the village. Because, my listeners, there has been a ship of Russian men primarily who have come to the island. They struck a deal with Karana's father, the chief, basically where they said that like they would hunt otter from the island and in return for taking the otter from the island, which is typically a resource that the tribe gets to take advantage of and I'm sure that they use those otters for food and for warmth and all those other resources in return for the otter they will be given like miscellaneous goods um it seems in the end like it's beads and things that like aren't especially useful the deal turns sour the Russians threaten to leave without paying there's a whole battle most of the men are killed on the beach including Karana's father it's a very sad scene I think I would say like overall this book is pretty graphic and violent there's a lot of scenes of like animal violence human violence it's pretty dark in that way um and so now this society is left with like a lot of women who are having to fill in with with roles and with jobs that normally weren't part of their day-to-day routine yeah the gender roles thing definitely bothered me and was more apparent than when I read it as a kid when Karana gets deserted she keeps fearing her tribe rule that women aren't allowed to make weapons women are allowed to make weapons but she does it anyway and she thinks she's gonna get cursed as a result which is just so such a toxic mindset and my favorite part about the when the women took over and had to hunt in the beginning or help out I love that there was the line that said they did better than the men had and then the men got really sulky as a result. Yeah, I pulled that quote out too. It says, life in the village should have been peaceful, but it was not. The men said that the women had taken the tasks that rightfully were theirs, and now they had become hunters. The men looked down upon them. There was much trouble over this until Kim Ki, who's the new chief, decreed that the work would again be divided. Henceforth, the men would hunt and women harvest. Since there was already ample food to last through the winter, it no longer mattered who hunted. Oh my gosh. It's just like fragile masculinity at its finest. Everyone chill with your ego. 
I, it's just, I, I actually wonder if any of these tropes were actually true though back then. And especially with this kind of tribe, because I mean, it was written by a white guy, this whole story, because there are some tribes in the States that actually like empowered women even more than this. So it could, I don't know if it's just a product of the time or a product of maybe some stereotypes, but I don't know. I'm curious where he pulled his research from. It's hard to say. I think like, obviously when we're having these conversations, I always want to be mindful of the fact that these traditions come out of communities and out of tribes and and out of heritage that like matters and is important and has value um and so it's certainly like not to shit on any of those traditions or to make fun of them but I also think it's important that we recognize that like even in our American quote-unquote mainstream culture these are things that we're addressing so um while obviously we want to respect like traditions that may have been accurate in the 19th century when this book is set important to also note that like these expectations these standards are problematic and are, are things that women across the world in different cultures and different societies are still having to sort of dismantle piece by piece because traditions like this are like entrenched in where they live nicely put no and i think it's crazy how ramo internalizes this as we progress you want to kick it off with the rest of the story because i think we're still at the the war yeah i have to take a deep breath before i talk about what happens with ramo next okay so (laughs) so kim key the new chief like realizes that that they can't really sustain this lifestyle they don't have the resources they don't have the manpower like sorry not a word that I love to use but it's accurate they don't have the resources they don't have the manpower they don't have the human power to like continue to live peacefully comfortably safely on this island and so Kimki embarks on a boat to go find help or like find a new place for them to live east and he doesn't come back but this other boat comes back and there are white missionaries on it and they're basically like Kimki didn't make it but he told us that like you all were here and we want to support you and like get on our boat and like come with us and it's interesting because like for me it's like a little bit of a stranger danger thing and you know you're like is are you sure this is okay like can we actually get on this boat is that safe and I think that generally like the people on the island were grateful and and relieved that this boat coming in wasn't full of the Russian people that had like completely destroyed their society however many months or years ago but they're still obviously like skeptical of who these people are and yet they trust because they're like okay like our old leader said that this was what you were supposed to do so they gather all their stuff they're getting on the boat and at this point Karana is like fully responsible for Rama her little brother and she's told by somebody I think by one of the white men that like Rama was on the boat already and so she goes on the boat with everybody else and she's looking out at the island because she realizes like she hasn't seen Ramo on the boat she's on but there is a second boat so she's like okay maybe he's on the other boat she's just like trying to figure out where he is she's looking out toward the island and she sees that Ramo is on the beach still Uh, and he's gone after his fishing spear which is like such it's 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 sweet because inconsequential though it's so inconsequential i hear you but it's also like he i mean he's six these kids are young like he's six years old kron is 12 and i do think that he as you said had sort of internalized some of these norms and like the expectations of being a boy or being a man and so he was like i need to have my spear with me like it would be irresponsible for me to get on this boat without a spear and so like he goes back for it which then leads krona to like beg the men on the ship to like wait for her little brother they won't 
don't because they think it's something with the weather, like they have to go or they'll get caught I think in a storm. it's something with like the tides or something yeah. because I actually saw, I was looking at pictures of the island and there's, it, it's a really interesting little cove and I can see how the timing would make a big difference for leaving versus staying. And also just, I'm sure maybe they just didn't have enough resources on the ship to add another day to the trip or something like that. Yeah. So she jumps off the boat. She jumps off the boat to go be with Ramo, and look, listeners, I'm looking at Perrin right now. She has a lot of feelings. I'm just going to kick it over to you. <laughs> I have so many feelings just because I have, so for context, I have a little brother and a little sister, and my little brother has done stuff like this before. It's like, we're going on a road trip, and then like 10 minutes in, he's like, I forgot my headphones. And it's like, we literally spent three hours packing for the car ride. George, don't be mad at me for repeating this, but no, it's just like- Shout out. Shout out. <laughs> no, it's just, it's- so frustrating because I mean it's cool because he catalyzes this whole journey for Karana obviously or else we wouldn't have this book but um I don't know it's just it's funny because then it evolves into like when they stay on the island she starts taking care of him he thinks he has to do all these man tasks or traditionally male tasks like hunting and getting the canoes and stuff and being a big strong man and it's like it's crazy because that ultimately leads to his demise yeah and he is like I'm gonna be the chief I didn't I should have pulled out that quote and I didn't but he has this moment where he was like it's on me to like be the chief and I'm gonna take this on and again he's six years old but he's like really internalized that I think he's like probably very proud of his dad and like they are grieving their father which is so hard and like maybe he thinks that he can make his father proud by like being the chief of his sister because at this point they're the only ones left on the island and I will say that like in the reading that I did sort of about like the true version of all of this they don't know 100% of the facts about what really happened in the 19th century with the real Karana whose name they don't actually know she's documented right. as I believe Juana Maria or Juana Marina yeah yep, that's what I read in the um, records in Santa Barbara but they actually don't know what her real name was, but there's some question about like how old she really was. There's some question about how she actually ended up on the island. The long story made short is that there was a woman who lived for 18 years alone on an island off the coast of Santa Barbara, and ultimately like she was rescued by white missionaries brought to the mission in Santa Barbara and wasn't really able to communicate, wasn't able to share much of her story. So there's so much that we and that they, they being archaeologists and anthropologists, like don't know about why she was there. And one of the things that they don't know is like how she ended up there. I think the prevailing theory is that it was actually like her son because in real life she was I think closer to like 24 right um so she had a child and she was like likely trying to save her child and like didn't want to leave him behind which makes sense and then obviously Scott O'Dell the author was like well this book isn't as interesting to kids if the main character is 24 so let's make her 12 and let's make it her little brother so that's what happens with Remo Everything gets extra complicated with Remo and my feelings about him and about the whole thing become so much more complicated because shortly after they're abandoned, Remo does this thing where like, again, in the name of, in, in all good intentions and in the name of like trying to make his sister proud, trying to make his family proud, he like ventures off on his own. He's like, as Perrin mentioned, doing a quote unquote like man task and Karana had basically been like, why don't you wait? Like, I'll go with you later in the morning I think he had decided he was going to do it late at night and she was like why don't we go to bed and and later tomorrow we'll go together she wakes up he's not there and she goes to look for him and uh, this is hard to talk about she basically like finds that he's been killed by like a pack of wild dogs which like more graphic stuff like we aren't just told that he was killed by a pack of wild dogs the author like describes that his body is like in the middle of all of these dogs so 
it becomes this very complicated, I think, emotional situation because Karana, like Karana was on the boat. She was on her way. She was with her sister. She was she was nervous to leave the island with these missionaries, but like she had a plan. She was going to be safe. She was going to get to eat, like all of these things. And then she's the one who takes the responsibility to go after her brother and she wants to do the right thing. Again, like this is a group of kids that like don't have parents. They want to make their parents proud. And she's trying to save Ramo and she's only on this island because of him and then within like a day or two he's gone right I mean I'm curious like if roles had or circumstances had changed just thinking out loud you know if Ramo had if she had not jumped off the boat I wonder how it would have ended for him if he would have prevailed for as long or if it would have just been like a whole nother lord of the flies or something I mean he was like when you think about a six-year-old now it's like a six-year-old is a baby when I read this as a kid I probably was like oh six isn't that young you know I was probably 10 but now I'm like wow six is so little and she did the best she could like they had a couple of good days like they were surviving and making it work and obviously because this is a book meant for young kids like we don't go into the emotional rabbit hole of like I blame you for putting me here now you went and got yourself killed like we don't go there with Karana and I think that she like I think that she's a really like solidly good person who wouldn't necessarily go there anyway but as an adult it's like hard not to think about that because she she was on the boat on that note I think the author does a really good job of describing like the depression associated with all the circumstances like there's a like definitely like tribe-wide depression after the war had happened I mean Karana grieved a lot and he touched on the depression like she just stayed by his body like wouldn't eat or drink until she absolutely had to I mean it's a really awful situation just being stranded like that for god knows how many years (laughs) Because the the timeline is like, it just zooms through. It feels like Game of Thrones season seven versus Game of Thrones the last few seasons. I'm clearly very excited and not counting down the days until April 14th. (laughs) Well, when this airs, we'll be like, what, two weeks in? And so you'll be like, but isn't this the last season? So aren't you going to be kind of sad? I'm going to be sad, but you know what? It's just, we've all been chomping at the bit for over a year for how it's going to end. So it's like worth it for the sadness. It's, it's totally worth thing. it. And watching some of the actors, side note, watching some of the actors give uh, interviews recently, they said they went all, the production team went all out for it. So it's going to be like watching eight movies with like the rest of the world on Sunday nights. Haven't they been spoiling things too? Like haven't the authors, haven't the actors been screwing everything up and like spoiling stuff on late night? I don't know. I've been maybe watching you're avoiding it. I don't know. I, maybe, I've, maybe I've been avoiding it because I've been only, only watching some of the Good Morning America ones. Those just popped up on YouTube instead of the late nights. <laughs> yeah, I don't watch Game of Thrones sorry everyone so like I'm you know I don't really care but I feel like I've been seeing headlines everywhere that the whole season has been spoiled anyway listeners I'm sure there's a lot of Game of Thrones fans out there I hope you're enjoying it I hope it's going well for you I hope it's everything you hoped and dreamed it would be (laughs) but this this goes really fast I don't know if we read the same edition but in the edition that I have there's an intro by Lois Lowry different we have different Different. covers do you have an okay yours is I'll say parents is much prettier than mine I think mine is the old school one I got this at a cute new used book store because I've been trying to be more intentional with how I buy books and um this was literally the one I read as a kid and it smells like the one I read as a kid oh my gosh the best yeah you have the little red like yearling flag at the top of the spine everybody you know what I'm talking about my copy is not that pretty I think mine is the 50th anniversary edition and it's way prettier yours is prettier than mine I I disagree mine's kind of tacky I don't know sorry if there's a book designer listening but you have Ronchu on the cover I do I I do have Ronchu I showed Irv last night and I was like Irv this is you and me this is (laughs) 
<laughs> I'll, I'll post a photo of the cover in the show notes so that you can look at it, everyone. But just like imagine a beautiful girl and a wolf. And I was like, Irv, it's us. Look at us. We're on this rock with the dolphins. Um, I am Karana. Uh, right. I could sing the song, but I'm going to spare all of you. Perrin, you did a great job. You really nailed it. <laughs> so this intro with Lois Lowry, like one of the things that she talks about with respect to, to the book is like the pacing of it, which I think is really interesting. Fun fact, Scott O'Dell actually didn't start writing for kids until his 60s. He had all these other careers. He worked as like a, I think as a cameraman in the film industry. He was like a technical producer and then he was a book reviewer for many years and then he started writing kids books in his 60s and he wrote 26 of them which is insane and then a few years before he died he went on to like title a kids book award in his name which I'm like you know what you do you good for you yeah um so there but there's this whole thing in this intro by Lois Lowry who is one of my favorite YA and middle grade authors and I hope we do more of her books on the show but she talks about sort of the passage of time in this book and how it feels like it moves so quickly I'm sorry for any page turning but this I actually didn't pull out the quote. But anyway, there's like a lot of of talk from Lois Lowry about like how artfully Scott O'Dell achieves that. And and as I said, in real life, Karana, again, that's not her real name, but she lived alone on this island for 18 years. And so I don't know if we're meant to to think that Scott O'Dell was trying to mirror that time frame exactly because he took a lot of other liberties with the book. But it's, it's clear that she was there for a long time. And once we get through that initial round of action, with them getting abandoned on the island in the first place, with Ramo getting killed, with her sort of like getting through those first few days alone, it kind of picks up like almost every chapter starts with some variation of like, and then it was spring, and then it was summer, and then it got cold, like, and then all of a sudden there was no food. So I, I think Scott O'Dell does a really good job of keeping things moving, which is hard to do. Like, I feel like a lot more authors do that wrong than do it right. Totally. No, I, uh, I mean, I thought it was cool, but it also, maybe it's just one of those commentaries on how time can move slowly but fast, depending on your circumstances in terms of some days she had a goal where she was trying to kill a squid. That was sort of her driving force. And I get that. Like, if there's a project I'm dying to finish, if there's like, I'm a big puzzler, for instance, like if there's a puzzle I'm going to finish, like time goes by really fast. Or if there's like nothing to do, then time goes by really slowly. And um, no, I think he does do a really good job talking about that because it's a, I mean, it's a long, I, I, did, I guess this is also lost to me. Like it was a long freaking time she stayed on that island. But do we want to talk about Ron too real quick? Because we <sighs> mentioned him, but we didn't go on to him. I could talk about Ron too. <laughs> Same forever because I just I have so many feelings for him we went on such an emotional journey with him because you and I both read the end of this book this morning I can only imagine that you're having the same emotional experience of like grieving Rontu because spoiler alert everybody Rontu dies and it is the most heartbreaking not only scene but like full chapter of a book that I've read in a long time of course I'm like reading it sitting there like stroking my dog and like having so many awful anxieties about anything ever happening to him even if he was like 30 years old but that like enough about me obviously so yeah Rantu <laughs> is sort of like the leader of the pack of wild dogs that kills Ramo we find out later on I think that like he actually came to the island with 
that first boat that had started the war. So it's interesting that he kind of was like part of all of this. Obviously, he's a dog and like didn't have any active hand in like dismantling this community. But like he was there and he came with those people that did. So that's interesting from a symbolic perspective as well, I think. And we don't get into that much in the book, but I think it's worth noting that like that's where he came from. And he came and sort of became like the king of all of these wild dogs that lived on the island. So he had also sort of made his mark well before before he even met Karana. So yeah, like Karana has seen that Rama has been killed by this pack of wild dogs and really all that she can do given her circumstances is make the decision to get revenge for Ramo. And so one of the first things that she starts to do as Perrin said like periodically Karana takes on these goals where like I'm gonna kill this animal or I'm gonna build this thing you know she has these different kinds of things that she wants to achieve over certain periods of time and one of the first things that she wants to do is kill Ramo in particular because he is like in, he seems to be in charge of this pack at least based kill on Ramo like, too not yeah. Ramo oh my gosh Ramo's already dead <laughs> oh my gosh that sounds awful please no oh my gosh she doesn't want to kill Ramo I'm sorry she wants to kill Ramo too I mean I don't really want her to kill either of them wow it's I- a- I, I told every. I'm so reeling. I'm reeling from finishing this book. Listeners, I, I'm sorry. I totally misremembered this part because I was really, I love the part with the dog. I've always been a dog lover. Like my family, we always had a dog growing up. And um, I thought for some reasons, because there was one part where she's surveying the dogs in the beginning. Like she has to make a bunch of spears and she's trying to, at one point she test pilots a plan where she drives them out with fire at the beginning of their cave. And she sneaks into the cave and sees a mom dog with a bunch of puppies and I thought for some reason she took one of the puppies and raised him on her own because I thought it was kind of harder to train a dog that had already gone feral a little bit and then have him back in an environment where he's uh, submissive to a human. So I was a little bit confused, like behaviorally, if that would work with an actual dog, you know, like if the dog went wild and then could it come back and be domesticated again? She does that at the end with Rantu's son or with the puppy that she decides must be Rantu's son. Maybe that's what you're right. remembering. But that's not as big it of like a plot that. point. Like we right. there's this there's a puppy and it sort of feels like it's her chance to have another shot at like dog momming, but it's not the same as Rantu, obviously. It's just that part struck me a little bit. I just wonder how like feasible that is, just because like I'm always fascinated by like dogs and stuff like that. It seemed to take her a long time to like domesticate him, you know, to the point that you can domesticate a dog when you're living in like a cave or or an outdoor shelter. But so she like has this plan to kill him and she's like inches away from being able to do it. She's fashioned herself an, a bow and arrow. Like she's gotten over her fear of somehow like being punished by the gods for, for breaking this rule about women making weapons. And then something stops her. Like she's getting ready to shoot the arrow at him. I think he's already kind of, I think one of the other dogs has injured him. Like he's already like laying on the ground. It's not looking good for Rantu. And she's seconds away from like finally exacting her revenge and then she decides not to and I'm curious like what you think from this like you know mature grown-up perspective that you have like what do you think was holding her back I think part of it was just pure sympathy because for one thing she hasn't come across any animal that was injured at this point and we learned that she has this motherly tendency to heal injured animals because she does this with an otter she does this with a couple well I don't know if she heals the birds but she kind of just takes them for herself but she has that instinct to heal but also I think I think it also comes from like a wanting for companionship at the end of the day because I think 
you know, having something to do gives her a purpose because she knows it's very boring on the island other than getting food for herself and getting water. She doesn't really have a lot of other things to do. Taking care of something gives her a new sense of drive. But I mean, it's hard. It's a really big moral conflict because obviously like this is the guy who is not the guy, but this is the thing that essentially killed your brother. So it's like, it's, it's a, it's a big conundrum. I had two thoughts about that. The first is that I, I feel like she's just not the kind of person to kick somebody when they're down. And that's, that was sort of my initial thought because at first I, I was like, and I'm a dog lover as everybody knows, but my first thought was like, he's right there. You spent all this time fashioning the weapon. You clearly are from this like survival focused community where like as much as you love animals, you understand that like sometimes animals die and sometimes like animals can be dangerous. And when animals are dangerous, sometimes it's incumbent upon humans to like take control of a situation. And, you know, nobody at me about that, but like, that's, that's true in communities where literally like your only priority is to survive. So I think like I was confused at first because I was like, I don't see why she wouldn't be comfortable with this. This seems like something that she might have been exposed to growing up, you know, the act of like having to kill an animal, even at close range. But I think just like the image of him laying there and being surrounded by all these other dogs that he was theoretically like the leader of. And now they're all kind of like laughing at him and in whatever like dog form that takes. She just had this like soft spot in her heart. And I just think she's not the type to kick any kind of creature while they're down. And also like she was in a situation where she was down. And I think as readers, we're supposed to kind of like see parallels between her situation and Rontu's situation where they're both like kind of shit out of luck in different kinds of ways. And I think she just like can't help but relate to the fact that he's fallen a few (laughs) notches and it would like suck to have somebody make that worse for you. Um, So I think that was part of it. And then the other part, which I didn't realize until the end when Rontu dies, again still heartbroken clearly Mm. was that it felt to me like the end of an era in certain ways and that like Mm -hmm. Rontu had been her only link to that moment initially on the island when she and Ramo were there alone and he was sort of her last link to Ramo because like he had known Ramo like in kind of a twisted way obviously because he'd been part of killing him but it was like the fact that Rontu had been there when this whole thing happened in the first place and like witnessed their first few days there and been the catalyst for like the death that would leave Karana alone on the island it was like the end of this chapter for her and so it was like she needed companionship and also it was like you you need somebody feels weird because we're talking about a dog but like you need somebody to bear witness to that and I think she like had appreciation for animals and for nature and so like it made sense even if it was going to be Ron too. Totally and I think it kind of mirrors like the one observation she makes near the end where she notices the otters because for a long time the otters go away uh, because they were murdered by the Russians in the beginning and then she notices like many years later a bunch of them come back because the ones who saw the previous massacre had died out so it was also like this hinting at like a new generation or a new cycle the end of a dynasty yeah it's sad and and she has been so patient with Ron too and I think again you know you're talking about your experience with dog behavior and I kind of had the same thought I was fascinated by him and the way that Scott O'Dell wrote him as a character was so great because he really was anthropomorphized in some ways like he had certain human like behaviors and 
And she noticed them in the way that I think pet owners notice human behaviors in their own animals. That sometimes seems silly to like people that don't own them, but like when you're tuned into an animal and you like live with an animal, they do kind of take on human qualities. And so I thought that the way Scott O'Dell wrote that was really effective. And the way that he wrote the progression of their early relationship, especially, which was basically Karana being like, I'm going to leave food out for you because I don't want you to like die alone. So like at least have some food and you'll have a fighting chance. You know, I don't, I don't think at first her intention was to like make him a pet. Um, but over time he comes to trust her. And like you said, we have no idea how long any of this is taking because the book is written like it, it could be like 20 year journey. I guess like Rontu's life is sort of our only benchmark because he dies, I'd say like two thirds, three quarters of the way through the book. And if he was like a puppy or a year old, when we meet him, maybe that could have been like an 11, 12 year old span. Right. Exactly. And I think like going off of what you said about him being anthropomorphic, it's a hard word. I'm, I'm just not gonna, I'm gonna avoid that word. But no, I uh, I totally agree. I mean, it's a it's a, he was very well written, better than like arguably some of the other dogs that are just seen in car in uh, other books like where the red fern grows and stuff like that. Have you guys done that one yet? Or is that on the list? No, I'm scared to do that one, but maybe <laughs> well, we'll do it. That's a, that's a that's a rough one. Um, but going back to Ron too, I mean, I think he was definitely some kind of wolf, and those guys are really really smart animals and he howls a lot so he must have been some kind of northern husky wolf based dog and I liked how much she talked to him because like when I'm alone or I'll like I'll talk everybody talks to their animals when you're alone it's like I don't know anyone who doesn't <laughs> yeah I liked when she was making um she went and she got into this phase where she started like making clothes and, and making jewelry for herself and obviously this is a extremely heteronormative statement to make but I did like I laughed just at the notion that as she was making like a flower crown for herself, she just sort of like casually said to Ron too, like, oh, if you were a girl dog, I'd make you one too. I think she made him something. She made him some kind of wreath or something. Yes. Also, which I thought was really cute. Yeah, they're and friends. Love, they're so close. And he was there with her when um, she fought the squid. So she she called the squid a devil fish because she and Ron too were exploring this cave one day and they see the squid in the water. And then she gets the drive all of a sudden and says, I want to kill that thing because it's really delicious and I think it has a lot of really cool purposes also can we talk about like how she kills all these animals and skins them like things like you and I I, I could never do any of this stuff I, no. I just no absolutely not so incapable it did kind of make me want to go back and watch Survivor <laughs> in a weird way so real. <laughs> like picturing her building her like because she had multiple multiple structures it wasn't just like one house like she she had one space that she set up in a cave that was more of her storage space so that like she could easily get to things if she needed to escape and then she had the house that she built out of whale bones but like she had to go back after the whale had been killed to like get the bones like she she had all of these different things that she had to do to survive and it made me feel like an idiot of course um but I think like that the real value in a book like this is and and I like especially that this one is like a, a girl main character the, the value is in like realizing how much even kids are capable of under dire circumstances totally and I, I mean all these random skills that I just I don't know because she also taught herself a lot of stuff like she taught herself how to make these spheres and stuff with no manual and it must have been so frustrating every night to try and attach a spearhead to a piece of a pliable piece of wood or figure out how her uh the men in her tribe did and trying to just rack her brain for all that stuff and the fact that she was able to weave baskets out of kelp i mean 
how do you even, I, I wouldn't know where to start besides maybe drying the kelp. And it's literally all she's doing with her time. And I actually hadn't, I hadn't thought about that in depth until this very moment, but it gives you perspective. Like she has nothing else to do, nothing else to do. So she has all of these hours to fill and she's filling them by learning to do things and yes it's out of necessity but like other people would give up quite frankly and like she's like no I'm gonna figure out how to learn and she spent a lot of hours doing those things I don't know why sometimes I would just think of life of pie for some reason uh when I was reading this I don't know what other books you thought of but I just thinking about like oh you have this one animal companion that's maybe kind of dangerous but then you kind of grow you grow a giant fondness for but also I mean I remember Pai Patel picking out this list from the survival boat that said, oh, make sure to keep your mind occupied because that's one of the biggest things that drives people insane when they're alone in a survival situation. So I really, I thought like I hadn't picked up on that obviously until I read it now, but it makes more sense uh, when I read it as a 26 year old than I did as a 12 year old. What about the other human that we meet over the course of the book at some point while Karana is living on the island a boat comes she realizes pretty quickly that it's the same group of Russians who came and killed all the men in her tribe years ago and for good reason she panics she goes and hides in her cave and while she's sort of like observing all of this from far away she sees that there's a girl about her age who seems to have come with them and is like kind of like the assistant like she seems to be doing sort of like girl quote-unquote tasks and she's like trying to hide from her which I thought was interesting because I was like I don't really know what would have happened if they found that there was like one girl I'm like would they really have killed you I don't know like I, I feel like they would have brought you home I'm just I don't know but she's she's spooked by it and she is hiding from the little girl but ultimately the little girl to talk um, to talk finds her well one thing we hadn't mentioned uh or I forgot to mention trigger warning is that apparently when the Aleuts came the first time they also raped a lot of women um when I was doing a lot of research so I think that's probably like one big reason as to why mm. she probably felt safer approaching women as opposed to the guys and stuff because she wasn't sure what they do and obviously like this wouldn't be a children's book if they mentioned like rape and stuff like that not to minimize it obviously but I mean at that point I think it's probably driven out of like a want again a want for more female companionship also probably like maybe something else that could have been a big factor is like oh she was maybe close to I don't know how to put this nicely but you know like marrying age or just like an age where you get a lot of more female friendships like as you get older I don't know if this has been similar with you but I feel like I've valued a lot of like my friendships lately with women more than men totally yeah it's it's just interesting because effort and I think part of it was just like an anxiety like she's been living on her mm-hmm. for so long and so she like she was hiding even from the girl for a while I think it's just because like she doesn't know how to like interact with humans anymore and like you don't know who to trust or like what kind of cues to pick up on and that kind of thing so she's hiding from from the little girl but they do end up meeting and becoming friends and it's very sweet and they strike up this little routine where they seem to hang out like once a day about there's like this one awkward moment where Tutak who's the other girl points at Rontu 
and then points at herself. And Kron is like, it was like she was saying that she, she, that Rontu belonged to her. And like that kind of freaked Kron out for good reason, especially because Rontu came originally with people on a boat. And so she was like, oh no, like what if this little girl is sensing that like he needs to go back to where he came from? But generally, like they really have a nice time. And, and Tutak brings her beads and like Karana makes her food. It's just really sweet. It's like such a nice example of friendship and especially like friendship that they can't even communicate with each other. They don't speak the same language. They, I think they, one of the really neat things is that they like establish there are a few words in each of their respective languages that are really similar. The word for beautiful, I think was the one in particular that I remember where like they realized that they could sort of understand each other because the words were like similar for beautiful in both languages. Yeah. And I think it also, when you say, when you say that, it makes me think, oh, maybe she also just wanted someone to admire the pretty things that she had made or done because like the animals couldn't do that. Obviously she put so much work into making her cormorant skirt. I mean, she killed 10 birds and plucked their feathers and then sew them together to make a skirt. I I just, I don't even know where to begin with that. I mean, she had a lot of time, but still. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how I'd, I don't know where I'd get the drive to do that personally, but. Well, I think generally like over the course of the book, I really liked that we had these windows into the fact that like, Yes, she was really working her ass off to survive, but like she also really liked to look pretty. Like she liked that she had some of these remnants from her old life, skirts and jewelry and, and you know these kind of like traditional parts of her community that made her feel beautiful and as she got older, those things that made her feel like a woman. There are facial markings that her sister put on her face to show that like she was ready to be married and at the end of the book when Karana goes to meet the white men that will ultimately take her to Santa Barbara, like she she goes through the ceremony of putting them on her own face. Even with everything that she's been through, it's important to her to to feel confident and to feel pretty. I think that those sort of nuances can get lost sometimes in kids' books in particular where it's like, no, this girl is a survivalist. You know, that's all that she's focusing on. Or this girl like only cares about her appearance. And that's where I think we've gotten into trouble over the years with traditional gender roles and with heteronormativity. And with a character like Karana, it's like, no, she's extremely capable. She's taught herself to do a lot of things. But you know what? Like, there's no shame in the fact that, like, she likes to put on her pretty skirt and that that's a priority for her, too. So it's like my little my little balance moment there. No, totally. And to clarify, I'm not condemning it. I just think it's so cool. I, yeah. I just, I don't know how I'd be able to do that in terms of um, making a, fashioning a skirt out of, like, bird feathers. I mean, that is unreal. I wish there was an image. I would love to see her image. Like if she's probably just being like a badass on top of the Mesa. I mean, I barely wear anything other than yoga pants and I am not living on an Island. So I can't imagine being like, you know what, I'm going to fashion a few more skirts to wear as I'm trying to like keep myself alive for the next 18 years. Oh, and I was so mad that they made her a new dress when she went down, when she meets the missionaries at the end, they sew her a dress on the spot to cover her up. And I'm just like, Ugh, why? Yeah, well, that's a great segue because I wanted to talk about that more. Thank you for that. I think that that is where you really see what can be perceived as problematic about this book. Because quite frankly, if you read it straight through and you're not thinking that much about the context of it, if you're not thinking that much about the fact that it was written by a white man and that it's about a girl who's in this 
community that's like very far removed from this white man's community. If you don't think about those things and you read it at very service level, if you don't think about all of the atrocities that must have taken place when these men at first invaded the island, like if, if you just kind of read it straight through, you wouldn't necessarily see that much that's problematic about it. It's a survival story. And I think like I had gotten a bunch of notes from people knowing that I was reading the book who were like, oh, like, I think there's going to be some issues with this. And to be quite honest, like, it was not nearly as problematic as I thought that it might be given what I heard from people, at least not at surface value. Like, yeah, you can read into obviously like the gender stereotypes and um, things like that. But the bottom line is, you know, we have to remember this book was written in 1960. And we have to remember that it was a book that was written about a community and a society and norms that are much different than our own. So like, that's just the fact. Um, I think things did become more problematic, or at least I became more aware of them being problematic toward the end, where, as you said, these white men come and she like so sweetly had been so proud, like she put on her best clothes. She put on this makeup on her face in the tradition of like her sister. Like she finally was getting a chance to do these things that she as a woman had kind of like dreamed of doing. And they are like, no, like cover up. And they, they make her what sounds like a horrendous dress. Like they, I think it, it was described as like, they sew like two pairs of pants together somehow or like two jumpers and and it just sounds awful and she just kind of has to submit like if she wants to get on this boat and go to the mainland like she has to wear the dress totally and she also said I mean it was itchy and it's hot and as someone who hates itchy and hot things personally I was probably I was very angry on her behalf but also I just I think it's fascinating that that was one of their first priorities. Maybe it was an act of kindness or maybe it was an act of propriety or something. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's, I I don't know. I'm just surprised they didn't like make it maybe like offer her food or maybe some of their water or, or offer Ronto, Ronto Jr. Uh, What was Ronto Jr.'s name? Ronto Aru. Yes, Ronto Aru. Ronto Jr. You know, just covering her up. It's just like, why is that a priority? Like she clearly is embracing her culture and proudly showing it. Why? I don't know. Maybe she was indecent, whatever that meant, but still. Yeah. Sadly, probably like very true of the time. Like it was probably very accurate to what happened and they take her back to the mainland. Like we don't know much more about what happens to her after that based on the book, but for listeners who are interested in real life, what we think happened from what, you know, what's been written it was funny, a lot of the articles that I read used the word viral to describe what happened to this in the 1800s. It was like the story about the lone woman on the island went viral when they brought her back to Santa Barbara. They brought her back to the mission. They gave her this name. And um, there's a lot out there about how like nobody was left in the world who could speak her language, which historians are now kind of disputing, I think. Like there's now some question as to whether or not like she was actually able to communicate with some people. But she died seven weeks later. She wasn't... um, around for long she ended up dying from dysentery and I found one other sort of upsetting nugget which was that like I guess they took her to the mission and the article was like yeah and she like sang and danced for the people there which is just like just the idea of her like after going through 18 years of this you know being put in any sort of a position where she was expected to perform for like the amusement of people who I'm sure were like oh like isn't this an interesting looking person it's just sad especially because I'm sure it was like a survival thing like she was like you know I have to do this so that I can eat or have shelter or whatever so that's kind of what happened to her in the end Um, obviously like a fascinating story and I will say that the fact that 
it is based on a true story to any extent made me appreciate it more as an adult. And also a bunch of the other tribe members had also died out by then because they were taken, either taken to the mainland or taken to another island, but they also died of um, similar diseases uh, just from exposure and whatnot, which is also horrific, needless to say. Yeah, it's a sad story in a lot of ways, but it's also like a triumphant story. I mean, she lived for 18 years all on her own, which is incredible, kind of no matter how you look at it. Totally. And uh, apparently, when I was doing my research, they made a movie about it in 1964. And I was trying to find clips on YouTube, and sadly, I couldn't find anything. But then I looked at the cast, and it probably would have made me angry because it's a heavily whitewashed cast. Yes, it is. I think even the actress that played Karana is white, but she won a Golden Globe for it. I saw that, and I was like... What? Isn't that crazy? I've never heard of her, so I'll have to do a little more digging about her. I'm curious. So you you run Feminist Script. So I'm wondering, like, generally, like, we've touched on this a little bit here and there throughout the conversation, but I want to, like, pick your brain for a second here. From your feminist perspective, from the perspective, I think, of intersectional feminism, how would you characterize this book? What would your thoughts on this book be um, from that standpoint? Um. Well, I mean, the biggest problem I have with it is that it's written by a white guy instead of any indigenous woman who would have a better sense or would probably do a better job of understanding the horrors and maybe it probably wouldn't be a kid's book if it was rewritten truthfully by an indigenous woman because that what happened to that tribe was so horrific. I also think, you know, Karana is a really great protagonist and we obviously still need more of those protagonists, especially now. I mean, movies and books with badass women of color leads do better because we just don't have that representation now and it's just it's such a shame that for so long the perspectives have been flawed and and the protagonists have been flawed and inaccurate because they were written by people who don't look like them Mm -hmm. so that was again my biggest problem with the book but you know I mean it's a it's a good story overall about survival and you know a woman taking on men's roles essentially. I I have so many mixed feelings about it, but I mean, it was, it was a good refresher overall because again, I read this book when I was 12 and did not know anything about feminism. I probably didn't even know what the word feminism was as a kid, which is why I like started feminist script a few years ago because I wanted kids and younger audiences to see the stuff that was happening and that was affecting their moms, their sisters, themselves, other people, marginalized communities, people of color, LGBTQ community, etc. Well, and as a fan of the show, you know what's coming. Did reading this book now for SSR make you love Island of the Blue Dolphins more or has it ruined it for you in some way? I think it's definitely ruined it for me in some way just because... Again, at the end of the day, it was written by a white guy. Yes, he was good at it, but like <laughs> the author's note uses the word Indian. I mean, ugh. so even if you'd liked it all the way through, then you get to the last page and you're like, ugh. Not just that. I mean, the fact, like the way he generalized it, I don't know what kind of research was available back then, but I'm not sure how thorough he did his research, even if he was like this great children's author. I just, again, I would have preferred if this was written by an indigenous woman instead of Scott O'Dell. I would love for there to be a retell, like a retelling of it now, because obviously like this is something that happened and there's been new information that's come in. So like, it would be interesting if somebody, I think people are probably afraid to do another Island of the Blue Dolphins because this was obviously so successful. Worth noting that it won the Newbery Medal. Um, Obviously it's been on like school lists forever and it's hugely popular and it sold six and a half million copies and all that good stuff. But it would be interesting if somebody were to tackle it kind of with updated facts and like a new perspective. I think it'd be cool if someone did 
I, I could see a really good, you know, historical nonfiction come out of this. Like, I think that'd be way more appreciated because, I mean, they're still doing all this research. I mean, I was reading that the Naval Committee had dug up a bunch of the artifacts and were trying to ship them over the mainland, but a lot of people petitioned that because they didn't want the products to get damaged. But, I mean, they're still unearthing things and they're doing carbon testing on the land and figured out there were people that lived there way centuries ago. Yeah, it's an ongoing story and an interesting one. So um, I challenge anybody out there to give it a shot. I'd love to read a new telling. As I said, I didn't have like a certain expectation of it because this was not a favorite for me when I was a kid, which in some ways like took some pressure off. I wouldn't say it made me necessarily like, like it all the more. I appreciate it as a true story. I appreciate the fact that it is this intense survival story with a girl at the center of it, but I echo your concerns. And generally it's just, I'm not as good at reading books like this that are like heavier on detail and description as I am at books that are like really rich with character. But I get it. I understand why it's such a big deal. And I'm glad we had a chance to read it. Other than this and other than Little House on the Prairie, what have you been reading lately? Unless your time with Little House on the Prairie is just like overwhelming you. If that's the case, you can share something that you've been like watching or listening to. But um, as you know, Um, we always like to share a recommendation. Oh my gosh. Well, I was late to the party, but I tore through Educated a few weeks ago by Tara Westover, which um, which was amazing very, very compelling. I've actually been trying to read um, books only written by women this year, and I just actually picked up Jodi Picoult's latest book, Small Great Things. I've always been a fan of her. I don't know. Some people have mixed feelings about her, but I think it's a fun... She's always fun, like, character-driven switch perspectives and stuff, Um, and I just started that. Actually, pro tip, I picked it up at Barnes & Noble upstairs. There's a table for books that have been slightly damaged, so I had some sticker residue on it, so I got it for, like, eight bucks instead of 24 bucks. So look out for that, listeners, if you're ever at Barnes & Noble or any bookstore. They have, like, the slightly damaged new hits section. That's a great book hack. Well, I loved Small Great Things. Obviously, like, tackles some really intense issues, and I really enjoyed it. I Her other recent book, Spark of Light, I did not like as much. I had high hopes for it because it tackled abortion and the abortion debate, and I was, like, really looking forward to see how she would handle it. And, like, I'm pretty consistently a fan of hers, and I did not like the way she told that story as much. Small Great Things, on the other hand, I think is a great example of what she can do unlike anybody else with, like, like a hard subject. So I think you're going to like that. Have you read Made yet? M-A-I-D? No, I have not, but I will put it on my list. Yeah. I'm also hard binging the act right now on Hulu. Okay. I've heard that it's great. I have not watched it's it. So, it's super creepy. If you've seen the documentary on HBO, it's like a way more creepy version of it's just seeing it come to life as opposed to hearing the facts about the case are just so ugh, there's nothing like it. It sounds super spooky. Well, I'll include links to everything you recommended as well as a link to Island of the Blue Dolphins in the show notes for this episode. I will also include a link to Feminist Script Parents awesome Instagram feed. I want everybody to check it out. Go shower some love. Parent, I'm so grateful that you were on the show. I had the best time talking with you and I hope you enjoy the rest of this beautiful day. Thank you, Allie. So great to be here. Love. It's so crazy to be on the show. I've fangirled her so hard. <laughs> oh, you're so nice. Have a good one, Parent. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. 
Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>